Chapter Sixteen, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Sixteen, Part One those who know only the post-bellum washington cannot realize the charm of the earlier city fifty years ago there were two washingtons one a large hotel distributed in edifices meeting the official nation's need the other a village still rambling at large after its two generations the village has been steadily swamped by the capital but it was to that my intimacy mainly belonged and life therein was delightful to the old residents and their circle the national washington was scenic also not a little grotesque and always amusing i kept at times a scrawling journal and select a few notes which though of little interest may give some idea of the incongruities one encountered in the primitive washington Quote, today i saw the catholic saint mrs mattingly entering her house it is, I believe, the thirteenth year since she arose from the bed whereon she lay, so far as human judgment could go, dying of cancer. Her importance to the Catholic Church here was so great that the Pope ordered that Mass should be said for her recovery on a given hour throughout the world. On that hour she was informed that the Church Universal was praying for her. Her system was revolutionized, and the cancer gradually withered from that moment her case has been the means of converting many hereabout opposite her house a psychological healing medium has put out his card declaring himself ready with the aid of spirits to do the same thing for any one afflicted at a dollar per head visited in company with john l hayes a distinguished lawyer lord blank he is an english nobleman who having spent all his means in litigation to obtain some vast canadian estates to which he believes himself entitled is now ending his days miserably in a garret in washington and is kept from starvation by charity mr hayes has examined his claims to the estates and has no doubt of their being well founded hard by is the splendid mansion of a millionaire who came here a barefoot boy with no claims but that which every industrious boy has upon the vast estate of the new world at the president's reception this evening the brilliant wife of the russian count b attracted all eyes i remember her years ago as a schoolgirl in georgetown whom i used to meet eating bread and butter and dragging her satchel for a wagon on her way to school the russian count also met her admired the pretty face beneath the bread and butter kept his eyes on her and just as she was leaving school adorned her with pearls and diamonds and took her to st petersburg as countess b met to-day a descendant of the fairfax family quite a beautiful lady and one too proud of her lineage to marry a mere democrat she is poor her family once owned a farm in Virginia, larger than England and Wales together. Passed a pleasant evening in the company of a niece of the novelist, Choke. She had, or was supposed to have, in her youth the gift of second sight. She gave me an interesting account of the experiments which she underwent to satisfy her uncle Choke's curiosity in such matters, and which led him to write his celebrated story, 
Dieverk Lauringen. She was forbidden by a physician the exercise of her power, and it finally left her. She is the wife of the Swiss consul at Washington. New Year's Day, 1855. It is the custom in Washington for the ladies of every distinguished house to receive callers. There is no restriction whatever, the brutal having the freedom of refined homes. I saw drunken men reeling into the front doors of refined families, their object being to devour the dainties provided lavishly on such occasions. At the house of Mayor Seaton I found the ladies shrinking, in the absence of any protection, before two half-tipsy fellows of the know-nothing species, who were demanding whether they, the ladies, did not think that Americans should rule America, and that every damned abolitionist should be hung. End quote. Outside of my congregation, I enjoyed acquaintance with several families, one being the McGuire's. The elder McGuire, father of Frederick, now superintendent of the Corcoran Gallery, had lived in Washington from early youth, and had personal knowledge of the historic events and personages of that region. With his humor and graphic powers, he related personal experiences and anecdotes which made many dry bones live even in my own Virginia neighborhood. For he was not an imaginative man, and his every narrative had the ring of truth. He had known President Jackson, and accompanied him on the steamer to Aquia Landing, and thence by stagecoach to Fredericksburg, where Jackson, 1832, inaugurated the monument to the mother of Washington. He witnessed the sensational incident that occurred when the boat paused at Alexandria, where an officer named Randolph rushed aboard and pulled Jackson's nose, an action by which the President and those around him were so paralyzed that the assailant walked quietly ashore. The President gave beside the monument an admirable address, but McGuire did not hear it, and told me why. When the company reached Fredericksburg, they were distributed about in its hospitable homes. Young McGuire, after his weary journey, slept soundly. In the early morning he was awakened by a colored servant, who bore a very large tumbler of something unknown. He drank the whole of this iced liquid, the most delicious thing he had ever tasted, and straightway went to sleep again. After a time he waked up, and went downstairs to breakfast. He found food set out, but the house was entirely vacant. He walked to the front door, and found the street also empty. One human being, an extremely aged negro, came hobbling along, who informed him that the whole town had gone out to Kenmore, a mile away, to hear the President's speech. The ceremony was early in order that the President might return to Washington the same afternoon. McGuire hastened out, but met the crowd coming back. So he returned to Washington with no recollection of Fredericksburg except its extremely matinal hospitality and the fallacious charms of the mint julep. The office-seeking spirit supplied Washington with characteristic types of insanity. There was sometimes seen on Pennsylvania Avenue a poor fellow in shabby half-military dress who imagined himself to be George Washington, and the boys trooping at his heels to be an enthusiastic people. There was a more striking figure who believed himself to be Lafayette. His name was Benoni. I first came upon him when taking a walk beyond the western limit of the city. 
in a beautiful grove the old man was sitting on a log in front of his hut his long and matted hair his beard reaching to his breast from every part of his cheeks his yellowish complexion the glassy brightness of his eye might have made him a comfortable living among the artists of paris or rome he had constructed a hut with old rails and there i visited him a fire in the centre an old coffee-pot and skillet a plank for bed with no clothing for it these constituted the whole estate of benoni the autumn frosts were already upon us and i asked benoni if he would not be more comfortable in the city he could not he said go away at present he had passed three winters there and had been assured by the president that by next spring his country seat would be ready he lived on what the market wagons cast to him foremost among cranks was the editor of truth with his many documents of importance to his country which he was eager to show he was a bore he had once caused a commotion in the senate gallery by wishing to shoot henry clay but that had not got him into an asylum nor even the wild insanity of supposing that a paper named truth could live in washington but its prospectuses alone lived every election year he announced himself a candidate for the presidency declaring that he loved his country as he loved his god i have sometimes queried whether henry Boucher did not get the title of his famous london journal from that poor creature in washington for it was from eighteen fifty four to fifty five that Boucher was involved with the british legation at washington for raising american recruits for the crimean war and when he was sent back with his chief crampton to england perhaps he may have carried among his souvenirs of washington lunacy a prospectus of the original truth the most interesting figure in congress to me was senator seward i met him only two or three times the first time at a reception and luxurious supper in his own house where i was introduced to him by the hon robert c shank but i had no opportunity for conversation footnote seward knew the political importance of terrapin and champagne i was told that once on hearing that some compromisers were coming on a certain evening to coax him in behalf of some measure he had a fine supper prepared and after listening to them threw open the dining-room door and said to the congressmen gentlemen let us table your motion for the present and footnote i remember however standing near and observing him while he was talking with eminent personages his air was that of candour and it was the same in his speeches there was in his whole manner one might say rather absence of manner abandon freedom from artifices and self-restraint senator seward's prestige among the anti-slavery people had been made by his bold condemnation of the fugitive slave law eighteen fifty in which he declared that men would not obey it they would be guided by a higher law the southern congressmen made what capital they could out of this alleged declaration that there was a law higher than the constitution but seward was after all a child of the political phase of the anti-slavery movement he was not trusted by those of the religious era senator sumner was the watchman for these and had an instinctive distrust of seward 
After the execution of John Brown for his attack at Harper's Ferry, Seward made a speech in which Sumner remarked to me the inconsistency of saying at one point that Brown was insane, and at another that he was justly punished. Seward was in Europe when the John Brown excitement occurred, and that imprudent phrase uttered immediately on his return probably cost him the presidency. John P. Hale, senator from New Hampshire, was a solid handsome man, with clear-cut features, a good voice, and a lucid, vivacious way of speaking. His impressiveness as an orator was partly due, like that of John Bright, to a humanized religious feeling which warmed and quickened his ethical principles. He once spoke of the enslaved and despised African, quote, who yet bears within him a nature destined to run parallel to the eternity of God. End quote. He had much reputation as a humorist. Hale was, I think, the most popular of the anti slavery senators among the Southerners. But he warned them solemnly that they were trying to carry slavery through an age to which it did not belong. Quote, you cannot steer an iceberg through the tropics. The warm sun will shine on it and melt it. The rains will fall on it and melt it. The winds will beat on it and melt it. End quote. Senator Hale had an attractive family. His daughters, with whom I sometimes cooperated in the drawing room amusements at Dr. Bailey's house, were among the young ladies from the North whose invasion the old Southern society in Washington could hardly resist. Senator Sumner fell just short of being a great statesman. I enjoyed his friendship for many years, and recognized his fine qualities, but always felt regret that Massachusetts should not be represented in the Senate by men more adapted to the crisis through which the country was passing than either Sumner or his colleague, Henry Wilson. Sumner had no sense of humor, and his way of treating things was too academic. I believe he would have been a stronger man if he had married earlier. He did marry late in life, too late for the marriage to be happy. He apparently had no relative or friend intimate enough to criticize him. His most intimate friends at home, Boston, were the Longfellows, who were too loyal to him, as indeed most of us were, on account of his inflexible devotion to our cause, to tell him his faults. Sumner was an incarnation of the anti-slavery conscience. He was sent to take the place of Webster, whose last appearance in the Capitol was to listen to his successor's arraignment of the fugitive slave law, for which he, Webster, was chiefly responsible. I sometimes met General Winfield Scott. In 1852 he had been a Whig candidate for the presidency on a platform of the suppression of any further discussion of the slavery question. For this he had been much ridiculed north and south. My cousin Daniel said in his Richmond Examiner that Scott's first name was originally Wingfield, but the G had been dropped for the more military Winfield. Mayor Seaton, at whose house I used to meet him, thought him rather garrulous, but he was a striking figure. To all who knew the old gentleman, it must have been appalling that at the beginning of the Union War the armies of the United States should have been under the command of this aged general, and yet I now have to credit him with the wisdom of having advised against the defense of Fort Sumter. Had his advice been followed, the war might have been avoided. There was never much literary ability in Congress. 
Daniel Webster gained credit for learning by his legal argument on the Gerard bequest founding a college from which ministers of religion were excluded. But I was informed that all the historical knowledge in it was supplied to him by a learned Methodist, Rev. W. B. Edwards. Longfellow said that Sumner recalled to him the historic speakers in Parliament, but the senator used to be ridiculed for his Latin quotations. Congressman Upham, who wrote the valuable monograph on the Salem witchcraft, impressed me, he attended my church, as a fine literary intellect entombed in politics. Outside Congress there was a good deal of intellectual activity of the scientific kind. Lieutenant Morey and Professor Espy, and at the Smithsonian Institution, Professors Henry and Baird, gave Washington a fine reputation in that direction. Schoolcraft's researches were interesting all countries in the Aborigines. The best feature of Washington was the courses of lectures given at the Smithsonian, not limited to science, which enabled us to hear eminent educators from various parts of the country. For modern American history, we had George Washington Park Custis, who compiled all the fictions about General Washington which historians find so impregnable. Custis was the man, I have reason to believe, who told Jared Sparks that the fine Marmion portrait of Betty Lewis was his grandmother, and to this day the portrait of Washington's sister, in Sparks, appears as that of his wife. Grace Greenwood, as yet more celebrated for her beauty than her writings, and Mrs. Southworth were devoting themselves to literature. I remember one man, George Wood, a government clerk, who aspired to literary distinction. He wrote Peter Schlemmel in America, and The Modern Pilgrim. I reviewed one of his books for The Intelligencer, and Mr. Seaton persuaded me to make it less severe. Wood heaped coals of fire on me by writing in praise of my sermons. The handsomest man in the Senate was Salmon P. Chase, afterwards Chief Justice. I heard Dr. McClintock say, People who suppose the anti-slavery men wicked ought to get a look at that heavenly face of Senator Chase. The face was always serene and fairly represented the man. Nothing could ruffle him, and the pro-slavery senators gave up trying to irritate him. He had reached his opinions by careful study of the Constitution, and on any question that arose concerning laws relating to slavery, his statement was final. He was a good clear speaker, but never rhetorical. He was more interesting in conversation than in debate, but went little into society. End of chapter 16, part 1